Again, let me welcome you. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone, and I get the opportunity this morning to kick off our Advent series. As we've been talking about it for the last several weeks, what we're doing on Sundays corresponds with the devotional book that we're handing out today called Love Came Down at Christmas by Sinclair Ferguson. We'll be going through these. The readings start today. So if you got your, your, your book a previous week, you can go ahead and begin those readings today. And again, whether it's on your own or as a family or with housemates or as a community group, I would love to encourage you to stick with this. We're offering one copy per family or two per household. It's kind of our Christmas gift to you. It's something that we can do together. There's also additional copies that are available for purchase uh, for, I think, six bucks out in the back. But for the rest of this month, I really hope you make a point to stay with the readings because we're actually we're flipping this service around from the way that we normally do it. Typically what happens is that when you come, you'll hear what myself or Todd or Chris has been meditating on and studying through throughout the week. And as you hear it, if you take notes or something like that, you try to hold on to some of the main points so that you can reflect on it yourself throughout the week. But what we're doing this month is flipping that around. Starting next Sunday, we'll be preaching through the passage that you would have just been reading and meditating on in this the week before. So that as you come, you, the pump is already primed, if you will. It's what you've already been reading and discussing together. And it may either confirm or perhaps redirect the way that you were thinking about it. But the whole point is that this will fuel our worship and enjoyment of Jesus this Christmas. But that being said, since we're, we're just starting the readings today, rather than jumping right into 1 Corinthians 13, which this whole Advent book is based around, that amazing chapter of love where Paul lays out what love is and how Jesus showed it to us, because we haven't gotten into the readings yet, rather than starting there, what I want to do is set the table for the whole series by looking at another passage that really gives us the big, a gigantic, as big as the universe view of what this whole love thing is all about. And it's the passage that John and Ruby read just a few minutes ago from 1 John chapter 4. Let me put it up on the screen for us. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's what Christmas is all about. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. There's so many things we could say and, and pull out from this passage, but there's three main points that I want to emphasize with you this morning to set up this Advent series about love. And it's this. What we learn from this passage is that love is defined by God, that God is not just a loving being, but that he himself is love. And second, that love was manifest, made apparent and visible and experienceable, if that's a word, by Jesus. And then lastly, that love is perfected as we love one another. Not perfected in that somehow we, we are able to love one another perfectly, at least not yet. But that word perfect there, it actually carries the idea of to bring something to maturity or completion, to fulfill the purpose of something. The point is that the love that God shows us through Jesus Christ reaches its, or its fulfillment, comes to maturity and completeness, not just as we receive that love and praise him for that love, 
but as now we begin to love one another as God has loved us. That's where we're going. Those are the three kind of main ideas we're going to look at this morning. But I would say this. If the purpose of this is that God's love might be perfected, brought to completion through us, our love must first not be perfected, but corrected. It must be corrected. As you begin the devotional readings today, you'll see as we move through 1 Corinthians 13 that as beautiful and famous as this passage is, there's a lot more negative than positive in it. Paul has a lot more to say about what love isn't. Love is not arrogant or rude or irritable or resentful. Throughout this whole chapter, Paul is seeking to correct our wrong views of love in order, as he says, to show us a more excellent way. And the point I want you to see is we need that correction. We need our love, not only only to see new visions of love, but ones that will shift us because there is something off kilter about our love the way it is. There's something that falls short or goes off track from what God, who is love, has intended love to be. We tend to believe lies about love, or at least just settle for half-truths, half-understandings of love, and deny other things that are essential to it. And especially, if you want to know the biggest way that we get love wrong, I make love all about me. How I want to love. How I want to be loved. And that's why 1 John 4 is such an important place for us to start. It shows us that love at its core is not just about you or me. Love at its essence is about God. Love is defined by God. Look back at verses 7 and 8. He says, let's love one another because love is from God and ultimately God is love. Pay attention to the word order there. It's important. He says that God is love, not that love is God. And I think that's actually a really important thing to keep in mind. You see, because as I've already said, we all have our own ideas about love, about what actions we believe are loving or not. We all in our life and relationships, even our relationship with God, are regularly tempted to say, if you really loved me, you would do this, or you would not do this. We evaluate people and even God based upon what we think love is. But John tells us here, if you start with what you think love is, you're starting in the wrong place. Don't start with your idea of love and then impose it upon God and others. Instead, look to God. Look to who he is because he is love. He defines it. Base your understanding of love upon who God is because that's what it's all about. The starting point, I would say, is not even just to look at the way that God loves us, the love that God has for us, but I would say the starting point to understand what love is begins with the love that God has for himself. That might seem like a little bit of a strange thought, but, but perhaps not, because in our culture, we, we regularly talk about this idea of loving yourself. We'll say things like, well, you can't expect anyone else to love you until you love yourself. And we often mean by that the idea is like being comfortable in your own skin, being, com- being okay with who you are. But that's a much different idea than what I mean when I say that we have to start with the love that God has for himself. What does it mean that God is love? I think it all comes down to understanding this really mysterious but profoundly beautiful thing called the Trinity. That the God of the Bible has revealed himself to us as not just a solitary being, but a community of three persons in one. 
The three-in-oneness of God, that from all eternity, God has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we just sang in the doxology a couple minutes ago. How all that works is mysterious. People talk about it like eggs or the stages of water, and it's, no, it's not any of that. The Trinity is the Trinity. It's one of those things where you can never fully wrap your head around it, but I would say as hard as it is to grasp, the Trinity is the most basic thing that we believe. Basic because it is the basis, the foundation for everything else, including our understanding of love. Here's what I mean. In John 17, Jesus, on the night before he's crucified, is praying to the Father about what he desires for his people. And he says this. He says, Father, I desire that they also, my followers, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see what he says there? Before the world was made, before there was anything else, there was already forever a Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God, and there was love. This is profound. It's this great mystery. But listen to the way that Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, he describes what this whole relationship of love must be like within the Trinity. Look what he says. He says, The life of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutual self-giving love. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. Now, some of you more macho guys in here might go, what are you talking about, the dance of God? It actually is a very old idea. Some of the earliest Greek theologians, they talked about this, they use this word that basically means to dance around to describe the Trinity. That within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is that mutual self-giving love, the pouring out of love and adoration on the other. So there is this, this rotating, choreographed, beautiful, peaceful, revolving around one another. That's what love is. When Paul says that God, or when John says that God is love, he's saying that for all of forever, in the perfection of that relationship, that's love. That's where it all comes from. That's where we have to start. That's why I would say if there's one kind of basic definition of love that I think can carry us through this whole series, it's this. That love is the enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of the other. Enduring, it doesn't give up. It's not just how do I feel today. Willing, not just based upon feelings, but the decided decision. That's a, I said it twice. The decision of the will to say, I will seek your good. So much more we could get into that of who's good. Who gets to define what good is? But let's start with this right now and continue to build it as we go through the series. Love is the enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of the other. That's what has been happening within this amazing dance of the Trinity for all of forever. And what that means, if there is such perfect love and glory, that means that God forever has been supremely happy. He has lacked Nothing. When this triune God decides to create a world and beings, it's not because he was lonely. 
It wasn't to somehow become greater, but to put that same greatness and love on display. And then amazingly, to create these beings in his image who could see that beauty, who could see that love and be welcomed into it. You were created by the God who is love to join in that dance. That's what life is all about. That's why when Jesus, he's asked what the two greatest, or what the greatest commandment in the law is, he says there's two things. You want to know what life is all about? It's this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and the great commandment. That's what life is all about. That's what I made you for. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This, my friends, if you've been searching, if you've gone to mountaintops or gurus or different things, let me tell you, the search is over. You want to know what the meaning of life is. It's to join in the relationship of the God who is love. That's what you were made for. That's what life is all about. Not just to love yourself first, but to build your life upon his love and have him lead you in his love to those around you, as we sing to join the dance of the Trinity. But here's the problem. If that's what we were made for, why don't we love like that? Well, we stepped out of the dance. The God who made us to join in this amazing, rotating, mutual, self-giving love. We said, yeah, thanks. I'm going to wait for a different song. You know, maybe there's a different part. Maybe that guy over there across the way that I had my eye on, maybe he'll, he'll ask me to dance. We threw the whole rhythm and harmony of creation off by by turning inward, by willfully choosing not to seek the good of another, but to seek what we thought would be good for us. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, when we see the way that Eve looks at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That God in love had said, do not eat from that. There is no life there. There is only death. But rather than believing that God willfully seeks her good, she said, hmm, you know what? That looks good to me. Gosh, that tree looks good for food. It looks like it's, it looks good to my eyes. It holds the offer, the serpent said, to make me wise. And so she took it and she ate it and her husband with her. And that inward turn to seek what we think will be good for us, that is what the Bible calls sin. Not just the rules we break, the wrong things we do, not just what happens in Las Vegas, Sin is the inward turn within all of our hearts to seek what I think is good for me at the expense of others. That is the root of all the disorder and dysfunction and everything that goes wrong in our world and in our lives. Michael Reeves, another scholar, he he explained this turn of our hearts like this. This is really profound. He says, it was not that after Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree that they stopped loving They were created as lovers in the image of God, and they could not undo that. Instead, their love turned. When the Apostle Paul writes of sinners, which is all of us, he describes them as lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Lovers we remain, but twisted. Our love misdirected and perverted. Created to love God, we turn to love ourselves and anything but God. In other other words, not only has our sin caused us to step outside the dance, to be separated from the God who is love, 
It's caused us to lose sight of what love even is. What love is really all about. But I would say, regardless of what you believe, what religion or creed you espouse to, you haven't stopped looking for that love. It's what you know deep down you need most of all. It's reflected in the songs we often sing in our culture. Think about this for a second. This might go back to some of y'all's heyday. See if you know this one. What the world needs now is what? Love, sweet love. Why do we need it? Because it's the only thing that... I'll hear a lot of older voices singing that one. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. We need love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. That's absolutely true. And what little love there is is twisted and distorted from what God intends it to be. The Beatles, I would say, were partially right when they said, all you need is love. But they could not have been more wrong when they said, it's easy. As anyone who's actually tried to live out a willing, enduring commitment to seek the good of someone else, it is anything but easy. And so because love is hard and complicated and we're so generally confused about it, some of us end up where Tina Turner did. We start to go, what's love got to do, got to do with it, right? What's, what's the whole point of this? Is it just a secondhand emotion? Is that all that love is, right? But along the way, I would say the most beautiful like, way that I've seen this longing for love expressed um, is by a song called, by a man called the Mumford and, Mumford and Sons in their first album, where they talk about this longing, this desire, this cry of our hearts to see the beauty of love as it was made to be. A love that will not betray you, dismay, or enslave you, but will set you free to be more like the man you were made to be. That longing is there within every soul. And my friends, listen to me. That is what Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ came to show us the beauty of love as it was made to be. A love that is more beautiful than all the ways that we conceive of it, but at the same time more challenging because at its core, the love that Jesus shows us calls us to turn from that self-centered, self-interested love that we so often settle for. But as you make that turn by faith in Jesus Christ and the love that he has for you, his love truly does free you to become more like the person you were created to be. That's why this second point is so important and what we'll be focusing on the rest of this whole month. Love was manifested by Jesus. Look at verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him, though we stepped out of the dance, though we willingly said, no, I don't want that, rejected and became separated from the God who is love, Jesus God the Son, the second person of that perfect trinity, took on flesh, was born as a helpless infant while still in some mysterious way being completely God. How does all that work together? I don't know, but he says the purpose for it was to make love manifest. I love that word. To make it visible and tangible and experienceable so that we could see it and believe it and be changed by it. 
if our turn to self-love, to seek our own good at the expense of others, has brought nothing but death, Jesus came to show us a love that might cause us to live through him. But understand that. If Jesus' love brings life and everything else brings death, then the first thing we got to get straight in our heads is this. The love that Jesus Christ has shown you is not supposed to fit neatly and nicely in your back pocket of the way that you already operate in your relationships. It's not supposed to go, oh, cool, yeah, that love's pretty great. It is what we need. I'll just keep going with the way that I normally do things. The love of Jesus Christ is the most disruptive thing in this world because it is rescuing love. Make no mistake, Jesus, by showing his love for you, means to turn you from your self-centered love. He means to bring it to death in you so that you might live with him. It's disruptive. It shouldn't fit nicely. Look at what he says in verse 10. Next one. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. That Jesus' love is not a response to our love for him or even what was lovely about us. His love initiates, takes the first step. He begins this process. Just as the God who is love created everything, so the God who is love initiates to save. But this idea of a love that's not just a response to our love or what's lovely about us goes against the most most basic way that we think about love in our culture. As a feeling, as a response, as a, as a pleasurable emotional response to something that we see as beautiful or admirable or good in someone or something else. That's why we talk about it as falling in love, something that happens to us, usually when we weren't planning on it, right? You walk through the mall and you see that new outfit in the window and you love it. You eat lunch at a new place and you're like, oh my gosh, guys, I love the food there. A new guy or girl catches your eye at work or in your class, and suddenly you're in love. And for as long as probably any of us can remember, we have been told by the stories we tell and the stories we hear to follow that impulse. Drop whatever you're doing and follow that impulse. Strap into that emotional roller coaster, even though there's really actually no strap to it, and then just ride it till it runs out. Because it does. It runs out. If your love is only an emotional response, just a feeling, a response to what you find appealing about somebody else, well, none of us are infinitely appealing. And so you feel like, okay, I have to somehow market myself or to get this surgery or do this thing so that way the person whose love I want will still love me. Or on the flip side, if the love is faded, maybe it's because this isn't the right person I should be loving. So what I need to do is wait or actively search for that feeling again. And when I find that feeling, well, I do what I did before. I follow, I strap in, and I ride that train until it goes off the tracks, even if it means abandoning and rejecting those that I used to love. Understand this. The disruptive love of Jesus is completely different. His love initiates. It is not a response to our love for him. Our Our love is a response to his love. His love starts first. He makes that first step. It's not that the biblical view of love is somehow against emotions. It just says that love isn't at its core about emotions. As we saw before, love is this enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of another. And even though we had chosen evil instead of good, our God, because he loves us, still seeks our good in spite of our evil. 
though we stepped out of the dance, God still initiates and welcomes us back into it. In spite of ourselves. Look at the way that, John, that Paul talks about this in two different places. How did God show love for us? It was that while we were still inward turned sinners, Christ died for us. Even as we were dead in our trespasses, God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. When did God show us love? While we are still sinners. How did he show us that love? By Jesus dying and rising again. But wait. Why? Why that? Why the Son of God dying and rising again? Why is that the way that God made his love known to us? Well, I would say it's this. If God is willingly committed to our good, that means that as a byproduct, he is also resolutely opposed to our evil. He is absolutely opposed to that which is destructive and deadly within us. So understand this. If your view of God's love for you causes you to think that somehow sin doesn't matter, your conduct doesn't matter, he's somehow indifferent to it, I would say you think far too little of God's love for you. His wrath and judgment against sin is not the opposite of his love. It's actually caused by his love. When you see someone that you love making really foolish decisions, engaged in a, in a destructive, deadly addiction, do you go, oh, you know, I just want to love you and the needles you keep sticking in your arm? No, because you love the person, you hate that which is destroying them. That's the love of our God. Listen to this. One, one scholar put it this way. I think she described it so well. She said, think how we feel when we see someone, someone we love ravaged by unwise actions in relationships. Do we just respond with benign tolerance? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite. And the final form of hate is indifference. If God were to be indifferent about your sin, that would be the most hateful thing. But instead, she says, God's wrath is not just a cranky explosion, but the settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. His wrath, his judgment is a part of his love for us. And that's the most amazing thing about the love that Jesus displayed. Look again at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, that's another good one we've got to chew on for a second. It's this big Bible theological word, but it basically just means two things. It means to cleanse and to satisfy. That Jesus, through his death and resurrection, was given to us by the Father in order that by his death and resurrection, we might be cleansed of our sin and evil. And that God's own wrath against our sin, which is a byproduct of his love, might be satisfied. So that we might be welcomed back into his love in order that we might live through him. Now, let me tell you this. No one else has ever loved you like that. No one else ever could love you like that. Jesus said of himself in John 15, he said, no one has a greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, or, or quite literally, those that he loves. The astonishing offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, or maybe you're just visiting family in town, understand this. This is what, the, what Christianity is all about. It is the offer from Jesus by grace of friendship again with God. 
in place of hostility and wrath. It is a way back into the love of the Trinity, back into the dance that is the very essence of all reality. It's what we were made for. It's what we need more than anything else. And only through Jesus Christ can we gain access again into that love. So if you have come to know God's love through Jesus Christ, the only logical response is to join the dance. The only logical response is to say, okay, because you love me, man, I'm loving you, and I want to love those around me. That's why, kind of our last point we'll look at briefly, is that love that was manifested by, by God in Jesus Christ is perfected as we love one another. Look at the last two verses of, this, of the passage. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's actually a really weak way to say it. We don't really have a, a good way of rendering that in English because it makes it sound like, oh, I ought to do that, kind of like I ought to exercise more or I ought to eat more healthy. No, this is as forceful as it can be. To not love one another in response to God's love for you is to show that you do not understand God's love for you. But if you do, you will love one another. He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Again, this is not something that starts with us, but with God. The most amazing thing happens as you begin to believe and embrace the love that Jesus Christ has shown you. John talked about it back in verse 7. He said that those who love have been born of God. That the third person of this trinity, the Holy Spirit, as you believe in faith, this spirit breathes new life into your heart. The way that Paul talks about it in Romans 5, he literally says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he gave us. It's poured into our hearts. And when that happens, when you truly experience God's love through Jesus Christ, when the Spirit pours that love into your hearts, you're suddenly free. You no longer have to chase after the approval and love of others. You no longer have to try to market yourself to remain appealing to those whose love you desire. You no longer have to just jump in the roller coaster and go wherever it leads, even though it's been destructive every time. You finally, for the first time, can begin to rest in the fact that the God who is love truly loves you and is committed to your good. You can rest. And then from that, another thing starts to happen. You start to all of a sudden learn new ways of loving, new motivations for love, no longer based upon what someone else offers you, what you find appealing in them. You find a, a love that can initiate like Jesus' love initiated for you. You can love the unlovely because you are unlovely and Jesus loves you. You can love those who are hard and difficult because you are hard and difficult and Jesus loves you. That same love that was manifested by Jesus Christ begins to be manifested in us. Again, not perfectly, but that idea of perfected is that it reaches its intended conclusion. It reaches its intended purpose as we who've experienced God's love begin to love others. That's what it means for this love to be perfected. And I would say that right there, Christians, is what our world is dying to see. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And how will our world see the very essence of love as it was created to be? As those of us who have encountered this love begin to love one another in the same way. 
This is our mission. This is our calling. To make God's love manifest in this world by the power of the Holy Spirit as we begin to love others and welcome them into that dance, welcome them into that love. That's why I believe this series is so important. Over the next few weeks, as we begin through the devotionals and through the sermons, to dig into 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to look even deeper into this love that Jesus has shown us and the call to love one another. We'll marvel and worship, but we'll also have to confess and repent of our disordered, misaligned loves. And through it all, we will lovingly, willingly commit to seek one another's good so that the world may know. That's what we're here for. That's the love that came down at Christmas. I'm going to invite the band to come back up, and we're going to sing one last song, that song, Build My Life, that talks about starting here, found your life on the love of God, and asking him to lead us in his love to those that are around us. But as we do, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you are just visiting family or just checking things out, I hope you hear my heart today. You have been made by the God who is love in order to join in his love. But you stepped out of that dance because you are born into the same messed up, sinful, inward-turned human family as the rest of us. But Jesus Christ came to manifest, to make his love known to you. It is a more beautiful love. You don't have to chase after it. You don't have to clean yourself up. Jesus is that propitiation, that one who cleanses us. But you must turn. You must turn from your efforts to clean up your life on your own, from your efforts to love people the way you want to, even your efforts to define the meaning of your life on your own. But in that turn, there is such freedom. If you would like to talk to someone about what it means to follow this Jesus, there's gonna be some of us up at the prayer room who would love to, to pray with you. But let's stand together and let's sing this song together.